Welcome to Through the Keyhole, home of the Association of Laparoscopic Surgeons of Great Britain and Ireland podcasts, putting innovation, technology and training at the heart of modern surgery. Hello and welcome once again to the podcast. Research is sometimes considered a scary beast and getting your work published uh, becomes one of those uh, mountains that we all find very difficult to climb. Today I am with my uh, great friend uh, Neil Smart, consultant uh, surgeon at the Royal Devon and Exeter Hospital, hernia wizard and maestro, colorectal sage and of course editor-in-chief of colorectal disease. This is Through the Keyhole. Neil, welcome. Tom, thanks for having me. Well, it's, uh, it's, it's fantastic. We are in Harrogate at the ACPGBI Annual Congress, face-to-face Congress, seeing friends that we've not seen for about 18 months. Tell me, how has your world been? How has research been over this uh, last few months? It's been an interesting time for all of us and I think there has been two key um, directions of travel during the pandemic era. The first has been that we have seen some amazing work and collaboration come to the fore. It's been electric, hasn't it? And surgeons have really stepped up to the mark with wanting to do some brilliant collaborative research in the United Kingdom and beyond and in particular credit has to go to the work done by the COVID surge group and they have done some fantastic work bringing together data about what happens to COVID patients who need to undergo surgery looking at things like if they've had COVID how long to delay what about vaccination and surgery all the questions that were really pertinent to the coalface surgeon and I'm glad to say that some of that research came in my journal's direction. So that was really nice as an experience. And there have been other strands that have come out from colleagues in Italy, Australasia, elsewhere in the United Kingdom, which has been a real um, bonus, I think, for academic publishing, where we've seen high-quality articles generated very quickly because of yeah. collaboration. And that has been great. The downside, I suppose, in any time like this is there's always the flip side of the coin with people wanting to jump on bandwagons. There's some stuff which is really low quality. And particularly during the first wave of the pandemic, when all elective surgery pretty much stopped and many places were waiting for the impending sense of doom that was coming and the world was going to implode. Surgeons often didn't have an awful lot to do because the cases 
of COVID hadn't started taking over some hospitals yet. Well, for, um, for surgeons, it's, it was quite difficult, wasn't it? Yeah, um, you because you didn't have anything to operate on because everyone was scared. Generally, in a disaster, we're the, we're the most needed people. people. There. Yeah. yeah, but it wasn't like that. And so all of a sudden, we started seeing this vast increase in submissions of projects that have been lying around for some time. And people were thinking, oh, I must get around to writing that paper. And we started seeing a lot of things coming through much of it was low quality. Yeah. So you got overburdened at a time when you were really struggling to see the wheat from the chaff. So that was quite I, hard. I heard some crazy statistic about the volume of of publications submitted uh, and and those that actually were then peer peer reviewed and 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 actually went on to go on to be published. Um, I think you, you, you guys had a lot of work to do in terms of reading. Oh, huge. Um, I mean, we saw a 60% increase in submissions during 2020. Wow. And that wasn't driven by COVID work alone. Yeah, It was across the board. And there were some uh, particularly prominent countries who were driving increases in submissions. Uh, China, obviously, won, which is a issue across all of... Uh, biomedical science, but America, United Kingdom, around Europe, Australasia, New Zealand. So we saw lots. It yeah. was quite. I, I think you know Anil Bangu and, and all of that group, the, mm. the COVID search group, really deserve a great shout out. Uh, as, as does um, James Kin Ross for the work from Pan Surge. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think. Um, the key thing that you mentioned that resonates with me is collaboration. Finally, yeah. everyone got together. So, so we had this explosion of work. Um, but as editor in chief of a very prestigious journal, um, and talking to an audience who are going to be listening of, of young surgeons keen to publish, I guess one of the things that we want to understand is, is, what is the impact of open access journals versus the traditional journals that that um, uh, we previously published? What what how how has that really changed things? So there has been a a big shift over the past twenty years, and I think it's worth understanding where open access came from. Partly yeah. driven by having a different model to move away from that concept of subscription-based and taking stuff from behind paywalls. When it first came about and we became cognizant of such publications, say 15, 20 years ago, they often started with a bad reputation, low quality, low impact, perhaps yeah. if they had any at all. And it, for a long time, it was almost a synonym of predatory journals whose behaviours were unethical, scam peer review, charging exorbitant fees, essentially a scam. But I think things have changed, particularly over the past decade, as more people have gone forward with open access and see the benefits of being able to have open access. And now many of the funders mandate that all of their funded research is published open access, yeah. whether that's in a fully open access journal or one which is a hybrid journal and allows open access within it. And I I can see that much of the um, concepts that have been laid out by the uh, 
group who've published the Plan S concept is coming to fruition. And I think the 2020s will see that flip to open access completely by the end of this decade across the board. And we've seen that already with uh, the COVID um, research. That was all COVID research was made open access by pretty much all the publishers. You didn't have to go to... um, uh, behind a paywall. So, so uh, I mean, the, the the concept is getting disseminating information at warp speed with with open access. Yeah. Do you think that's happening? I think it's getting much better. It's getting much quicker. It's not the only way of disseminating. Just saying it's open access and hoping yeah. that people will find it. People are now engaging much more about promotional activities, using social media platforms, using webinars, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, to help, use the phrase from George W. Bush, catapult the propaganda. And it very much is that, to get your message out there. And some people have become very adept at learning how to get those messages into the wider public sphere, particularly having the video snapshot synopses is very good for getting so, people to access things and you can put it on YouTube people can fairly go and look at it at any yeah. time so so uh, what what initiatives at colorectal disease uh, and you know over the last you know during your watch so far do you think have been most productive is is it the video snippets it's been interesting so we've had a few things that we've um, Done, and I have to give credit to um, Debbie Keller and Frank McDermott, who are our social media editors, and they really pushed forward the strategy from end of twenty eighteen onwards. Yeah. And I think uh, the focuses that we've had on some articles where we've done uh, tutorials about paper, or you've done interviews with some of the authors and doing tweet chats has really promoted some of the research that's been very good and some of the talking head reviews like a talking head abstract which were particularly useful both um, Jennifer Park from Sweden and James Park from Scotland did excellent uh, synopses of papers which were then easy to promote through Twitter in particular. I think that's that's a feature of of our age is, is getting that information and I think curating knowledge and getting trusted information. So so I think we all are very hugely appreciative of that. So so these youngsters now are out there, they want to publish. So what are, are there are there traps, are there barriers put in place uh, to stop these youngsters going and and publishing their often really good work? Um, I think the landscape's changed since I started out as a registrar and things that everyone used to start with, uh, which was the training ground, that case report, I think um, people used to like it because it was a good way of honing your skills, honing your writing. The difficulty is now they're almost unpublishable and the places which do publish them are, in essence, they're all open access, they're often predatory journals, and I would advise people it's no longer recommended. Even then, the next step up that wrong, that retrospective case series, that's become 
very difficult to get published nowadays yeah. simply because the standards in many journals have got so high. And I think if I was going to suggest where to start, I would direct people towards looking at the research collaboratives that exist out there. Yeah. It's a great way to learn the basics, have that mentorship, not just from the people far above you, but that near-peer concept where you're learning from other people who are in training but just a little bit more advanced than you. It's a step change, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. And, and and I think in, in terms of searching the truth, it's, it's really, really, really important. Um, I, I think... That must be some something that we maintain as 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 doctors, uh, we're the guardians of something very very special, and as scientists we have to pursue the truth. So you, you've you've given a very good indication as as to what you would advise a young trainee to uh, to go and do um, in terms of the collaboratives. Is there anything else in terms of when when you receive a, a, a manuscript? Um, what what sort of floats your boat? Is is it subject matter? Is it the way it's been written? Uh, is it addressing important questions? How, how do you sort of triage what must be a huge torrent of of submissions? So we get about one thousand six hundred manuscript submissions a year, and I will read the abstracts and the methods of all of those papers. Okay. And about a third to a half of them we will desk reject. So so you hear that here first, that the, the abstract and the methods just can carve away a third of your submissions. Or even up to a half. Wow. And that's largely driven by um, some of the manuscripts we receive are in particular from institutes or countries where one has uh, reservations perhaps about their honesty and veracity. Yeah. You know, the issues of paper mill publishing from yeah. China is a big problem throughout all of biomedical science. We have mechanisms in place to try and highlight those looking yeah. for things like plagiarism and we can see significant patterns and trends so so you're on the plagiarism thing very right from the very off yeah. as it comes through the door we're looking at it and that accounts for you know a good proportion of the papers that we desk reject so what if you take that stuff where there is significant concern about what's going on out of the equation right what is it that makes me think no to this so the things which are best described as me too papers yeah the journal publishes something last month someone else sends in a retrospective case series on the same topic and goes oh look we've done that too well, that's not really likely to get cited if yeah. there's um an article that's already been published we also look at um whether or not it is methodologically at least robust. There's no sort of prima facie uh, problem with what people have done. Single institution case series of small numbers of something which is a well-established technique yeah. is often likely to be um, rejected straight off. And so that, more than anything, governs what we do as a first cull. The next set of things that we look for, things which are 
novel, impactful, likely to be highly relevant to patients, likely to be relevant to cold face clinicians, things where are addressing real problems yeah. are very likely to be attractive to us. They'll get peer-reviewed and you'll be looking for issues within the manuscript that need ironing out and can peer review yeah. help mould that paper into something which is suitable for publication and is likely to have an impact. So that's what we're really looking for. Uh, there's a fascinating insight into into your world of, of publication, um, sort of maintaining the truth and curating this amazing amount of knowledge. Brilliant. Well, um, Neil, as always, fantastic to talk to you. Um, we've covered a lot of ground. Um, and I think, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of food for thought. So thank you very much, Neil Smart. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining Through the Keyhole. You will find more interesting podcasts in this series, as well as online resources, from the ALS GBI at www.alsgbi.org.